Once again, I'd like to welcome all of you in this room and those of you joining us in Elliott Hall as well as online. So grateful that you are here with us. If I have not met you yet personally, my name is Jay, one of the pastors here. And as you have heard already, um, something unthinkable happened in the life of our church when we lost our senior pastor, Brian. And this was not a scenario that we could even imagine in the life of our church. And I'm not an expert on grief, but I'll be walking through it. And I can speak from personal experience that what has been giving me comfort during these days is the word of God. That God's word, I don't know about you, but God's word has been so fully alive and active and living during these days. And I'm so grateful how God's word has been restoring my soul and my heart. So my encouragement to you is that whether it's during your quiet times or personal Bible studies with other people, just allow the word of God to give you the sense of peace. And that's why I'm so encouraged by having Pastor John Ortberg with us today. John is a longtime friend of Highland Park Presbyterian Church. He is a personal mentor to Brian, uh, so many young leaders, one of the architects of our denomination earlier on, and um, so grateful that John is here with us. And one thing that I really appreciate about John, John, I don't know if you remember this or not, when I was once a young pastor, uh, I, we were at a conference together, and my role was to open up for John. My job was to pray for John Orberg, and I was really nervous, John, to, to pray for you. And I remember just, I don't know what I said. I said something. I prayed. And I remember going to the backstage. And John, you paused. You looked at me and said, Jay, there was something about you, that comforting presence that you brought. Thank you, the way you're leading this conference. And I'll still remember that. And those words encouraged me. And I'm excited because I know the words that he shared with us today will encourage us. Will you join me in welcoming John Whippert? Jay, there is something about you. <laughs> oh, I'm so grateful to be with you. Um, I'm one of thousands of people. Across the country and way beyond who loved and admired Brian so deeply. And grieve with you and Allie and the family. I was so grateful for the memorial service and how people were able to name both the sadness. I found myself just sitting down here feeling sad, thinking I shouldn't be up here. Brian ought to be up here. And also being able to name the hope that is ours in the Jesus Christ that Brian served so wonderfully. And that led to what I want to talk about in these moments together this morning. At the heart of the Christian faith, at the center of everything we hope for, are three days in the calendar, for this is a historical faith. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Friday was the day of great suffering, from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to his trial before the Sanhedrin, his appearance to Pilate, his being crucified on a cross, his body laid in the tomb. That was the day when all of the sin and the darkness in the world did its worst, and Jesus took it. When sin entered the world, God said, 
cursed is the ground, it will produce thorns now. On Friday, Jesus was mocked. Do you remember what they made his crown of? It was thorns. He literally bore the curse for us. That's the darkest day in history. Sunday was the greatest day in the history of the world. On Sunday, the stone was rolled away. Nobody saw Sunday coming. Sunday was the day of such unexpected, death-defying, grave-defeating, fear-destroying, joy-producing, life-giving, transcendent hope that our sorry dark world has not gotten over it yet. Pentecostals are still shouting about it. Charismatics are still dancing because of it. Quakers are still quaking over it. Baptists are still amening it. Presbyterians are still appointing committees to study it. Episcopalians are still toasting it with sherry. More people go to church on that Sunday, Easter Sunday, than any other Sunday of the year. But today, just today, I want to talk about that other day, that middle day, not Sunday, not Friday, Saturday. Saturday is the day after this, but the day before that. The day after a prayer gets asked, but before it gets answered after a soul gets crushed down, but before it gets lifted up. It's the day in between. In between deep despair and great joy. In between brokenness and healing. In between death and life. It's the in-between day. What happened on Saturday? Well, nothing. The adrenaline of the crisis, and every great crisis has all this adrenaline. It's over now, but so is all apparent reason for living. At the heart of the Jesus story, at the heart of human history, really, are these three days. And the first day and the third day are so packed with action and emotion and detail that you could talk for a year and not scratch the surface. They're literally the two most written about, most studied days in human history. On Good Friday, our sins were paid for. On Easter Sunday, our hope was brought to life. Saturday is the day without a name. The day of God's silence. The day when nothing happened. These words were written about 1,600 years ago about this Saturday. What happened today on earth? There is a great silence, a great silence and stillness, a great silence because the king sleeps. God has died in the flesh and hell trembles with fear. He has gone to search for our first parents as for a lost sheep. So I want to consider Saturday today, not so much from our perspective, but as it was for a moment for the people who lived it. The disciples have not slept two straight days by the time they collapse Friday night. They wake up Saturday morning. The city that was screaming for blood, crucify him the day before, is now quiet. The crowds have all disbanded and gone home. Jesus is dead. And it's so strange, the Gospels that tell us all about Friday and all about Sunday tell us nothing about the disciples on this Saturday. They gather quietly, maybe. They remember his teaching. They remember what it felt like when this Jesus, the most brilliant man they had ever heard, chose them to be his disciples. He was so young and so gifted and so full of promise, and now so suddenly he's taken from them. 
And they thought he was going to change the world, but he didn't, not on Saturday. Maybe they talk about what went wrong. None of them wants to say this, but in their hearts, they're trying to come to grips with this unthinkable thought, Jesus failed. He didn't gain enough followers. He didn't win over the chief priests. He didn't find a way to make peace with Rome. He didn't get enough ordinary people to understand his message. He didn't even train his disciples to be courageous enough at the moment of crisis. And the worst moment is on the cross. On the cross, this Jesus did not say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. On the cross, he did not say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. We're told at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he died. On Saturday, they wonder if the best man in the world, the man closer to God than anybody they ever knew, could know failure and humiliation and then feel abandoned by God and then die, where's the hope? And then they remember their own failure. Judas betrayed him. Uh, Peter remembers how three times he said, I never knew the man, I never knew the man, I never knew the man. They all remember on Saturday to their shame how they responded when the soldiers came. Mark says, then everyone deserted him and fled. Saturday is the day after your best dreams have died and you wake up and you're still alive and you have to go on, but you don't know how and you don't know why. That's Saturday. And you have to ask, why is there a Saturday? Because it doesn't really further the story. If Jesus is going to be resurrected, why not just get on, die with, why not just get on with it? Just die on the cross, and then boom, next morning, resurrection. Why is it two events, but three days? And, and there's something about this that is significant uh, Paul, for example, when he's writing the church of Corinth, writes, For what I received, I also passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And then for the second time, he adds that little phrase, quite pregnant with significance, according to the Scripture. There was some deep significance to the fact that he was raised on the third day. And it turns out that the Old Testament is filled with what might be called third day stories. So, for example, in Genesis 42, Joseph's brothers get put in prison and they're released on the third day. Or in the book of Joshua, the Israelite spies are told by Rahab to hide from their enemies till they will be safe on the third day. When Esther hears that her people are to be killed, she fasts and prays for three days. On the third day, the king receives her favorably. When Abraham is afraid he will have to sacrifice his son Isaac, it's on the third day he sees the sacrifice that saves his son over and over and over. This is such a recurring pattern that the prophet Hosea actually says, come, let us return to the Lord. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. The third day. Here's the structure of all of these stories. On the first day is trouble. And then on the second day is more trouble. Silence. Nothing. You just have to wait. You can't make it go away. You can't solve anything. You're just stuck. 
And then on the third day, there is deliverance. And always it's God that does the delivering. Here's the problem. You don't know it's a third day story until the third day. When it's the second day, you don't know that deliverance is ever going to come. It might just be a one-day story trouble, and that trouble might last every day for the rest of your life. When our first child was born, Laura, I had a moment that I didn't anticipate. My wife Nancy handed me the baby, and I held her, and it was like for a moment I could see the arc of her whole life in my eyes. And I said to Nancy, such a strange sensation to think, while I'm holding this little body, it's going to grow up, and this little skin that is so pink and smooth and perfect right now will get wrinkled and mottled and blotchy. And this little copper gray hair, Laura's born with one little strip of hair like a mohawk on her head. This hair is going to turn gray, and then it's going to turn white, and then we will grow old, and we will die, and then she will be an old lady, and then she will die. This little baby I'm holding right now, Nancy said, let me hold the baby. You're creeping her out. What if trouble comes into your life and then it just keeps going on and keeps going on and keeps going on? Uh, I was thinking, being here this weekend, the Rangers just won the World Series. Did you all know that they just won the World Series? But uh, if I understand it right, they went like 50 years of not winning the World Series. You know, it was year after year after year. I grew up in Chicago. I've loved the Cubs my whole life long. And they went like 100 years. Wait, every year was Saturday. Just more trouble, more trouble, more trouble. Trouble comes and we're in the middle of it and we don't know what will happen. It might just go on and on and on. That's Saturday. Jesus has to experience the agony of Friday and then comes Saturday and his friends gather and none of it makes sense. Crucifixion was the worst of all possible outcomes. Rome crucified a lot of wannabe Jewish leaders. It was Rome's way of saying this was not the Messiah. I said a moment ago, Saturday was the day when nothing happens. That's not quite right. Not quite right. Something does happen on Saturday, and that something is silence. After the trouble hits you, after the pain of Friday, you call out to God, God, help us, hear us, save us, heal us, listen, do something, nothing. Now, in addition to the pain in your life, there is the pain of the absence of God, the silence of heaven. Very strange, disorienting day, Saturday. When the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis wrote his memoirs about coming to faith in Jesus, he called it Surprised by Joy. He got the title from a poem by Wordsworth, and the book is about how his love of joy is part of what led him to Christ. But there was a little more kind of insight to it. When he wrote the book, he was a lifelong confirmed bachelor of 57, but he had recently met a woman that in his late 50s he would marry. Do you want to guess her name? It was Joy. So his friend said, you really were surprised by Joy. They thought it was a very funny joke. Not funny enough to make anybody here laugh, but they liked it quite a lot. <laughs> and then after a lifetime of waiting, he was given only a few years, just a very few of happiness with her. And then she got cancer and died a very painful death. And he wrote another book, this one called A Grief Observed. Not surprised by joy, but a grief observed. When you are happy, he wrote, so happy that you have no sense of needing him. 
So happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise him, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Comes to everybody Saturday. A husband and a dad wants desperately to save his marriage and his wife will not listen and he cannot find out why and he can't stand what it's doing to his children. Mom and a dad I know find out the child they love has a terminal illness and they pray like crazy, but so far only silence and she's getting worse. A terrific guy meets a woman he's been waiting for his whole life and when his heart is totally vulnerable. She says, no thanks. And he doesn't know, will there ever be anybody else? You lose a job. You lose a friend. A church loses its pastor. Whole denomination loses one of the brightest young lights that allows it to dream again about the future. On Friday, on Friday, the dream dies. What do you do Saturday? Really, there are three options. Uh, one is despair. If you choose despair, you decide it will always be Friday. And it's interesting. There were people in the early church who went this route. Paul writes to the church of Corinth. How can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Because some people did. They just decided that they did not dare hope that it's safer to be cynical. Don't raise your expectations. Just despair. Death and then it's all over. Another option is denial. Just look for simplistic explanations, superstitious faith, forced optimism, cliched formulas. And there were people who went this route. Paul says, in another place, some have wandered away from the truth. They teach the resurrection has already taken place. And they take the faith of some. In other words, some said, it's already Sunday. So if you're having any problems, if any of your prayers are not answered, you just don't have enough faith. Get with the program. They did not dare grieve and lament and question and be human. Or you can wait on the Lord. Now, to wait on the Lord does not mean to be passive. It means what I do while I'm waiting for Sunday, I do with him. I work with him. I rest with him. I ask questions of him. I shake my fist at him. I cling to him. I seek to be useful to him. I just keep going. And I'll tell you, gang, a little secret. You can be with God on Saturday in a way you can't be with him on any other day. Because on Saturday, you know he is your only hope. On Saturday, you know. And Jesus enters into the experience of Saturday. Um, Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, there's one sign that might penetrate 
our dark, impatient world. And he says, it's the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is another three-day story. Now, I'll say a word about how the Bible calculates times because some people will ask, well, if Jesus died on Friday, but he rose on Sunday, he was only in the tomb for two nights, so Jesus was wrong here. So even in our day, we can count time in different ways. Purely hypothetical example here. Imagine a pastor's wife with three small children who are lots of work, and her husband, who is normally a huge help around the house, has to go on a trip. He leaves early Friday morning, returns late Sunday night, and she says to him, you were gone three days. And he says, no, 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 no. I was with you on Friday morning. I'm with you again Sunday night. I was only gone one day Saturday. Who's right? <laughs> She's right. Why? She's always right. Uh, the Hebrew system was called inclusive. They would count all of every day involved in an event. That's the way they would count time. So this is Jesus' way of saying, my story is like your story. It's a three-day story. He does this as a gift for you and me to enter fully into the human experience. Friday is behind us, but the resurrection has not come yet. Not for you, not for me. The ground still produces thorns. We still face Pilate and Herod. Our bodies age. The people we love die. Saturday. But God is at work on Saturday. Like when a little seed is in the ground and there's life, but nobody knows it. Um, if you know the Apostles' Creed, there's a striking phrase in it. It says that after he was buried, Jesus descended into hell. Nobody quite sure exactly what that means. Uh, Peter wrote this in the New Testament. You might have seen this before. He, Christ, was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago. Now, this is one of those really intriguing statements in the Bible that hints at something probably none of us understand for sure, but it does seem to mean that somehow, somehow, somehow what happened on the cross will save not only those who come after him, but those who lived and died before him, that somehow it has a way of redeeming that is beyond even the irreversibility of time, a great silence because the king sleeps, God has died in the flesh, and hell trembles with fear. He has gone to search for our first parent as for a lost sheep. Here's what Peter knows. His friend Jesus will go to any lengths to save anybody. On Saturday, Peter lived in the hell of guilt and self-contempt. He's the man who denied Jesus, but one day Jesus would come into Peter's hell and say, hey friend, I'm taking you back. Now, this goes about as deep as we can go. Jesus, we believe, is God incarnate. God made flesh. And from a human standpoint, we think of the miraculous day as Sunday. The man, Jesus, risen from the dead. From heaven's standpoint, I wonder if the great miracle isn't Saturday. 
Remember when Jesus is born, the skies are filled with a heavenly host and they praise God and they say, glory to God in the highest because that little baby is Emmanuel, God in a manger with us. Now the angels watch and see what? God dying on a cross? God buried, laying in a tomb? The miracle of Sunday is that a dead man lives. The miracle of Saturday is that the living God dies for us. He defeats death not by his invincibility, but by his vulnerability. So, if you can find him in a grave, if you can find him in death, if you can find him in hell, where can you not find him? So, whatever your pain, whatever your failure, whatever your regret, whatever your disappointment, this is not the end. It's only Saturday, and there is another day coming. Because after Saturday, the women went to the tomb, and they expect more sorrow and more heartbreak, but something happened, and the stone is rolled away, and the tomb is empty, and the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and has gone ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. Now, doesn't Jesus seem just a little understated here? <laughs> These women are devastated. They loved him. They come to the tomb. Saturday was just a death day. The stone's gone. There's an angel. All of a sudden, this rabbi who they love, who they saw die, who they saw buried, has risen from the dead. And you wonder, what profound statement, what amazing words, what explanation can you give when you have experienced resurrection? And all he says is, greetings. That the word that's used literally is as close, you can come to translating it, as just a very common informal way that uh, people acknowledge each other. It would be like, hey, how you doing? Like, what'd you expect? Like, did you think Saturday would last forever? Like, did you forget that God is the God of the third day? Dale Bruner is a great New Testament scholar. He writes about trying to tell this story in a children's sermon one time. And uh, so the preacher asked the children uh, the question, what were Jesus's first words to the disciples after he was raised from the dead? And a little girl raises her hand and says, I know. Ta-da! <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad translation. And then he sends them off. Now, for my community, spread the word. So, two items you got to hold on to in this Saturday season. One, hold on to each other real tight with great love, everybody. You all know we're living in a world where people are literally dying of isolation. Surgeon General report this last May said that uh, lack of emotional health is the defining health crisis of our time, and loneliness is at the heart of it. It's literally a life or death issue. The researcher from Harvard, Robert Putnam, in his great book, Bowling Alone, 
cites one study that finds that people who have great health habits eat really well, exercise every day, eight hours of sleep every night, but are relationally isolated are more likely to die than people who have terrible health habits, eat junk food, never exercise, don't sleep, but are relationally connected. In other words, it is better to eat Twinkies with your friends than to eat broccoli alone. Uh, a lot of times when pastors talk with each other about their churches, uh, there'll be a lot of complaints about it. it. Leading a church can be kind of a difficult thing. When I would talk with Brian, although I'm sure there were a lot of challenges, he just loved being a pastor here. He really loved you. And I think you loved him pretty good. I think you did. So keep building on that. Be really generous. Be real kind to the staff. They'll have a hard time. They'll have to make a lot of decisions. Um, churches can be places where people complain. I'm sure that never happens at Highland Park Presbyterian churches, but there are churches where they just make kind of a covenant together. We will be a non-complaining church. Can you all do that? You excited about that one? Does that sound like a really good idea? Just to care for each other, uh, recognize there'll be people who are just walking through great grief right now and other people may be new to the church or have lots of questions about the future. Just wide range of responses. Make lots of space for each other. Hold on to each other really, really tight. And then hold on to Jesus. Put your trust in Him. If you haven't ever done that, this would be a great time. Make him your savior and your guide and your friend. Because on Friday, the best man who ever lived died. On Saturday, heaven was silent. But this is a three-day story. And we live in a Saturday world, but we serve a Sunday God. And on Sunday, a stone got rolled away. On Sunday, death lost its sting and the grave lost its victory. On Sunday, hell was defeated, death was dethroned, darkness was derailed, the devil was demotivated. On Sunday, the tomb was empty and hope got fulfilled. On Sunday, faith was vindicated, the prophets were validated, the soldiers were aggravated, the disciples were animated. On Sunday, sin lost, shame died, Hope soared, love won. On Sunday, you got something beyond yourself to live for, something beyond your life to die for, something beyond your death to hope in after you die. It is therefore the central proclamation of the greatest victory over the darkest enemy by the noblest hero for the loftiest cause in all of human history. If anything in this sorry, dark world is worthy of holding on to, it is this. Jesus Christ is risen. Would you pray together with me? Heavenly Father, I pray for this great church and for every person hearing this message who has or is or will face 
a Saturday. I pray that the risen Jesus would walk alongside very close, especially in this season, to bring comfort and healing and hope. And we pray this together in his great name. Amen.